joyful we adore Thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before Thee, opening to the sun above. Melts the clouds of sin and sadness. Thank you for joining us for this program from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleville, Alabama. We hope that you will subscribe and will share our program with others. Now, we take you to the service of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. If you want to, go ahead and turn to the book of John in chapter 11, and that's where you're going to find this passage. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this. That song we just sang, you sang it over and over and over and over. I believe, I believe, I believe Jesus did this, I believe Jesus did this, I believe Jesus did this. And in that last verse it even says, I believe that he spoke to dead who? Lazarus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at John chapter 11 and talk about the, the death of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus and the importance of understanding this I am statement where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. One of the things about these I am statements that we look at uh, that we're trying to do with these things is to, is, is to make sure that we understand that when Jesus says, I am this, that we can connect the this to our lives. Because this is a powerful statement. For Jesus himself to claim to be the resurrection and the life is a great thing. But for many of us, we look at this and we read this and we go, but what does it mean for me? Okay, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but does that belief transfer into any real meaning in my life today? And I think it should. I think of of maybe all of the I am's, this might be the most powerful one. Or at least to Matthew, I look at it and I feel that it is maybe one of the most powerful ones. You can feel differently and, that, and that's perfectly fine. We're, this isn't a game of, of who's right and who's wrong. It's just that this one touches me maybe in a little bit different way. And, and maybe this one touches me in a little bit different way because of what I do. Uh, because of the job that I have, uh, because of the ministry that I'm a part of um, on a very regular and real basis and has been uh, for the last 20 plus years of my life. One of the things that uh, you deal with in ministry over and over again uh, as a preacher is death. Uh, It is something that is um, just a natural part of our life, whether we want to admit it or not. A lot of us um, Understand that at this very moment, even though we say we're living, at the same time that we're living, all of us are also moving one step closer to our what? To our death. We are one day closer to the end of our life right now than we were yesterday. That's just the nature of life. That is just the nature of of who we are in the flesh and what we are in the flesh. And and as a minister, as a minister, I am uh, coming into contact with that on a very regular and real basis as, as I sit and minister with families and go through that moment with families. But, you know, one of the things that is uh, so true, even though that is part of uh, my life because of my job, one of the things that it does 
not always prepare me for are those moments in my life when I lose somebody, when, when death comes into my family and touches my family, even though uh, I am around it more often and in different ways than most people, uh, when it touches my personal life and those that I love the most, nothing prepares you for it. Nothing prepares you for the moment of losing somebody, whether you've got um, years to prepare for it or moments to prepare for it. Losing those that we love is never easy. Matter of fact, it's one of the most difficult things that we experience in our life. I know that um, there are probably people uh, that you think of daily that, I, that you would love to just have one more conversation with, that you would love to just be able to sit down and eat dinner with them just one more time, that you would love to have one more car ride with them and, and just enjoy their presence one more time. We all have those people in our life. But as we think about, as we think about this passage this morning and this idea of do you believe, I want you to understand something, that Jesus entered the world of the dying so that he could take you to the world of the living. Can you say amen to that this morning? Jesus entered the world of the dying so that he could, now I can't read my slide, so that he could take you to the world of the living. The whole reason that Jesus came is so that he could overcome death, so that death would lose its sting, so that death was not one of those things as Christians that we looked at and had to be scared of and had to be worried about. He says, look, I'm coming. I'm going to do something big. I'm going to do something bold about this sin and about death that separates us and God. And when that was accomplished, we can now look at our death as not the end and not even really the beginning, but just the continuation getting to the best part. We're getting to the best part that there is to be offered to us in our existence. And so I want you to know this morning that as I have studied and prepared for this, I understand um, that there is a lot of emotion tied to the idea of death, a lot of feelings, a lot of sadness, um, and, and that this could be a, a topic that uh, maybe is, is difficult to kind of weave through and to study through and talk about this morning. But I want you to know this morning that the purpose of us going through this passage uh, is to ultimately get to the place where I say, I believe, and that statement of I believe brings me to great, as we're going to talk about at the end of the lesson, great anticipation of what awaits me when this life is over. So what we're going to do is we're going to take some time and work through the majority, read through the majority of chapter 11 and, and kind of set the stage for the actual resurrection of Lazarus, which is what we're going to get to. And then I want to share with you uh, in, in the only uh, jokingly scriptural way possible, three points that we take away from this particular passage. So let's go to John chapter 11 and um, whoever's running up there, if you will, just follow with me as I read along and we'll stop and talk about some things and then we'll keep going. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, was, um, well, whose brother was Lazarus, lay, lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, 
the one you love is sick. Now, there's a lot that's said in this little section of verses that sets the stage for what we're fixing to talk about. And I think the reason that this kind of uh, beginning section here kind of starts with the relationship of these people is to lay the groundwork to understand that these were important people to Jesus. These were Jesus' friends. Jesus probably had a lot of acquaintances. Everybody wanted to know Jesus, right? Everybody wanted to be in in, in Jesus' circle. And Jesus had a a very small group of people that were kind of his... um, kind of his core. I mean, he had his 12 apostles, but even among the 12 apostles, there were three guys that were, that were like his best friends. And then you kind of get this issue or kind of get this idea that with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they were kind of his uh, adoptive family, if you will, that you see different times in scripture that he would go back through Bethany. And, and this was kind of his adopted home base, if you will, that he had this type of relationship with them. And so verse 1 starts with, Lazarus was sick, and verse 3 ends with, so the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, why do they do that? I don't know exactly, but I get the impression, especially as we get to the rest of the lesson, the rest of the text, I get the impression of their calling in their favor, right? You know, you've got certain friends who that when you need certain things, you know you can call them and they can make those things happen, or, or, or they're the people that you depend on the most, and when I call you, you know, I know you're going to be there, that you've, we've all got those, those 2 a.m. friends, Right? That group is not always big, but everybody has somebody that they know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I call you at 2 a.m. in the morning, you're going to answer my phone call, and if I say, come to me right now, you're going to get up and you're going to come, no questions asked. We've all got those friends. Jesus was that type of friend of these people, so this is their 2 a.m. phone call. Jesus, the one you love is sick. The one you love is sick. And what did they expect? They expected... And I think you can put this together as we keep reading. They expected Jesus to stop whatever he's doing and what? Rush to Bethany and get there and take care of their brother who was sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, Lazarus, I'm sorry, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciple, let's go back to Judea. Now, some of that doesn't sound like love, right? Okay, I love these people. I want to do what's best for these people. And that's what he says, right? That's what he says. This sickness will not end in death. The best thing's going to happen here. But I love these people. And I love these people so much, I'm not going to show up to them for another two days. Right? Does that sound like love? If you call your 2 a.m. friend and they don't show up till 8 o'clock, are they your 2 a.m. friend anymore? You're going to find someone else, right? You're going to put someone else in that time slot. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let's wait a little bit. Let's wait a little bit. Then we'll go back to Judea. But Rabbi, verse 8, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? So what are they worried about? Let me ask you something. Do you think they're worried about Jesus, or do you think they're worried about themselves? Or do you think it may be a combination here? They're trying to kill Jesus, and if I'm one of Jesus' closest 12 friends, and I'm doing the things Jesus tells me to do, if Jesus is in trouble, then who else is in trouble? Then I'm probably in trouble a little bit too. But what are they really worried about? They're worried about death, right? 
This whole, this whole passage deals with this idea of death and decay. Death and decay, this thing that we're faced with every day, this thing that is just part of our life, that none of us are going to escape, that our life is going to end. This, this passage is, is all about that. Now, we love, you know, we, we're in a season here at church where we are definitely celebrating life, right? Because all of our young couples are having, are having babies, it seems like, and we're celebrating that part of life. And, and that's fun and exciting, but the back end of it's not fun and exciting, is it? The back end of it is, is, is hard and it's painful and it's challenging. And they're worried about that. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of, of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he, said, uh, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he's asleep, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So the first thing Jesus says here is he says, look, he kind of speaks in a little riddle, a little, little, little short parable here. He says, paraphrasing, he says, my time's not going to be up until I say my time's up, okay? I've got things to accomplish, and when that time is over, when I've accomplished what I need to accomplish, then, then, then I'm, no one's going to dictate what I do. There's 12 hours in the day, I'm going to do what I need to do. And then he says, hey, look, but Lazarus is going to sleep. And, and I love that. that. That's just a little glimpse into the godliness of Jesus. Had anybody told Jesus that Lazarus had died at this point? What does he know from a human interaction? What's the conversation? What's the message he gets from Mary and Martha? The one you love is what? Sick. Has anybody told him Lazarus is dead as far as we know? But Jesus knew, right? Jesus knew, I think, the moment Lazarus passed. I really think he did because he says, look, he's going to sleep. And he says, it's better for you that he's dead and that I'm not there. And, of course, if you know the rest of the story, you know why. But we're going to get there if you don't. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And this is important, although it's easy to overlook. And many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Why are they there? To comfort them during the what? The loss, not during the what? Sickness. They are there because when, and we do this, right? When, when, when people pass, we come and we show our respects and we bring food and we do these things for that family, okay? We're not necessarily always there as, as, as in bulk, if you will, during the sickness part. But when someone passes, we rally around those family, that family. And this is what's happened now. So four days prior and even two days before that, you know, you're looking at he's just sick. So there's probably not a whole lot of people around. But now there's a crowd. Now there's a crowd. And Jesus, Jesus is going to take advantage of this. Um, where are we? Verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. 
So she goes out, she meets in verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. So I sense, and I may be wrong here, but I sense a little bit of frustration and also a little bit of excitement. She, she is a little aggravated because she knew that if Jesus had been there to begin with, what could he have prevented? The death period, right? He could have prevented the death period. But she also has this statement of faith. What's the statement of faith? That God will give you what? Whatever you ask. So there's a part of her that understands here that something great could happen. Something great might happen. The only way that it can happen, though, is who has to be involved in it? Jesus. Jesus has to be the one that asks whatever. And I don't even know if she completely gets it of what she's saying. But Jesus follows it up. Verse 23. Jesus said to her, what? Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. How does she take this? Verse 24. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's focusing on what she understands and what she knows. You know, we talk a lot about the resurrection, and Scripture is very plain that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead on the last day. But at this time, in, in, in the Jewish dynamic, there was a, a very vast disagreement between the resurrection what the resurrection would be, or even if there would be. There, there were some Jews that believed the resurrection wasn't going to happen, but she's one of these that says, hey, I understand that on the last day, he is going to live. He will be resurrected. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You're talking about a powerful statement that he has just asked her. Because she's already said, I know whatever you want, whatever you ask can happen. And he says, but do you believe this? What is, what is he asking? Do you believe in me? Or do you believe in teaching? Do you believe in doctrine? And the doctrine itself is, is, is not agreed upon, right? Right? The doctrine itself of the resurrection at this time is, is some, perhaps some believe the doctrine is true, some believe the doctrine is untrue. There's a lot of gray area in there, a lot of debate, a lot of conversation. And he's saying, I want you to know that the power is not in the doctrine. He says, the power is in me. Do you believe this? What does she say? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been there with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This keeps coming up, right? 
right? They're focused on the what? The here and now. They're focused on the what they can see, what they feel, what they understand. Okay, that's their focal point. And there's maybe a little bit of blaming Jesus here. Hey, Jesus, you're our friend. You're the son of God. Does that not come with any benefits? I mean, you, you crash at our house all the time. We take care of you. We give you a place to sleep. We feed you. We take care of you. Hey, could you not have at least done this one small thing, showed up when we asked you to and kept him from dying? You know, they're frustrated, and understandably so. They're mourning. They're grieving. The next few verses show us the amazing heart of Jesus. And I don't want you to, to overlook this because I find it very moving, and I hope you do too. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. What moves Jesus? Was it the death of Lazarus that moved Jesus? No, it wasn't. Why? He knew what was fixing to happen. He wasn't worried about Lazarus. Lazarus, that, that, that issue didn't upset him because he knew Lazarus was coming back. He's got that part under control. But when Jesus saw the brokenheartedness of the sisters and of the people around, it broke his heart as well. And I believe the same is very much still true, that when you are broken, when you are weeping, when you are troubled, Jesus feels that. Jesus is right there with you, and it troubles him as well. It, it, he, he weeps with you still. That is the Jesus that we serve, and I think that's such a powerful image. And then he goes, verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And I want you to know that that word wept is not a somber cry. That word wept is a, a violent word, okay? Jesus mourned with these people. It was a verbal outcry crying. It wasn't, uh, um, I'm watching the sad part of, how many of you guys, like, in a very sad part of a movie, in the movie theater, like, your eyes water up, but you're like, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to, no, 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 mm -mm. The, the lights are fixing to come on. How many of you remember the movie Acts of Valor? Do you remember that about the Navy SEALs? And y'all, at the very end of that movie, when that guy has died, and those seals take their crest off, and they go up to that casket, and they put their crest on it, and they pound it down in. Y'all, I squalled like a baby. But then I'm like, I got to dry this up. There's people in this room. Like, I can't cry in front of these people. That, Jesus didn't have that moment. Jesus wasn't afraid to cry, okay? Jesus mourned with these people. So much that, verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Here's that question again. Jesus, couldn't you have done something? But in the world we live in, 
the reality of our limits, the story stops right there, right? The story stops right there. We come together, we mourn, where have you laid him? Let's go out there and let's mourn together. This is in our world, right here, right now, in this moment that we live in, that is the end. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 38, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the, cave, came to the tomb. It was the cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Now, again, let's connect these things because this next question or this next statement is directly tied to the question that he has asked previously. What does he say here? Take away the stone, he said. Take away the stone, he said. How does that connect to the rest of the story? What does he ask Martha? What does he ask Martha halfway through this conversation? He says, do you what? believe. We just sang a song, I believe Jesus did this, I believe Jesus did this, I believe Jesus did this. Let me ask you the question this morning that is so important. Do you believe? Do you believe? Because it's easy to sit in this room, it's easy to listen to the sermon, it's easy to talk about things and go, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believe he healed the blind man. Yeah, I believe, you know, this. I believe he called out Lazarus. I believe these things. But what does that belief do in your life? Does it change who you are? Are you willing to believe in Jesus so much that you're willing to walk up when he says, okay, if you believe, roll the stone away? Are you willing to roll the stone away? Or do you have this next kind of attitude of faith? But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. There is a difference in confession belief and action belief. He just asked, do you believe? She says, yes. I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Lord. I believe you're God. And so now he's saying, since you believe, show me. And what's her response? It's too late. That's her response. It's too late. He's already decaying. It's going to smell bad. We can't do this. What, what, What do you mean roll the stone away? We can't be that way. I don't know who did. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You know, I've read that a couple of times this week and I've thought about it. And it dawned on me that that needs to be more in my prayer life. This is just kind of a side note. But I need to be more grateful for just the fact of the matter that God listens to me. That he hears me. That's how he starts this prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice. Another way is a thundering voice. Lazarus, come out. I find it interesting that he doesn't say rise. He doesn't say get up. What does he tell him to do? Come out. Get out here. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Man, I would have loved to have been there. 
Because, you know, I mean, really and truly, they open up the grave, and I guarantee you it stunk. It stunk awful. And so that hit them. There's the emotional impact that's going on. But then they hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come out. And then, like out of a movie, here comes this mummy walking out, and Jesus says, now, go do what? Go unwrap him. Go take all these things off. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think Jesus didn't walk up there and take the grave clothes off? I think it was because he wanted them to know that this guy is alive. I touched him. I felt him. He was dead then. He's alive now. And Jesus did this. They wanted them to have the full experience of touch, of emotion, of smell. Of, they wanted, he wanted them to take it all in. Get it on every level that Jesus is the resurrection. What happens as a result of this? There's a huge crowd here, y'all. Huge crowd. One of the ways that you could, could look at this and maybe title this is the resurrection that led to death. Because the fallout, if you will, of this moment, verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had, and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here this man, uh, here is this man performing many signs. And the rest of the conversation goes on to planning the arrest and the plot to kill Jesus. So as great of a moment as it is, it starts the clock. Even though Jesus is in control, it pushes these guys to the edge of saying, now we're going we're to take Jesus serious and we're going to do something about it. What does this all mean for us? What does it all mean for us? As a community of believers, if I say that, yes, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, as I, as I sing the song and I make the statement over and over and over and over again that I believe, what should it do for me and for us in our life? Because as you go through Scripture and read, as you go through Scripture and read, if I believe in Jesus, there's a lot of things that it says happens. But one of the things that's interesting to me that says doesn't happen is it doesn't say death stops. Believing in Jesus will not stop me from dying in this physical world. It will not keep me from having pain. It will not keep me from having challenges. It will not keep me from facing these things and having great emotional upheaval moments, right? It doesn't stop that. Being best friends with Jesus didn't stop their brother from dying. But what does it do? What does believing in Jesus and having this community of faith accomplish for us in our life? Let's hit some things very quickly. I believe three things, and we're going to touch on these things and break them down in a very timely manner here because I'm over Collins 25 minutes. As a community of believers, we eat together with gladness. You knew that eat would be in there somewhere, right? We labor together with courage, and we grieve together with hope. I really want us to talk about this one because I think this is important. Go to the next slide. My, my thing's not working here. We eat together with gladness. Look at what Acts chapter 2 says. 
every day when they continued a meeting together in the temple courts. What does it say? They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I'm going to tell you something that I love to do naturally as I love to eat and, and I love to eat with other people and I love to fire up the grill and spend time with people and, and use that as an avenue of fellowship. And, and that is supposed to be who we are as people. We are to eat together, but not just eat together, eat together with what? Gladness. That's the key word in this passage. Not the eating, but with glad and sincere hearts. Now, I want you to think about this word gladness, okay? The English word gladness that is translated into, I do not like, and it's just because of language. While he's been talking about translations, I do not like the word gladness here in the translation because it is a very shallow word of what the Greek word really means. But it's just the way that the translation happens in all of our Bibles not just one specific one, because when we hear the word gladness, the English translation is a feeling or a state of well-being and contentment, okay? A state of well-being and contentment. Oh, I'm content, eat with with gladness. I'm, I'm, man, I'm I'm well. It's just, I'm just glad to be here. It's just good to be with each other, you know? Okay, but this is what the Greek word means. Ecstatic delight, exuberant joy, intense joy, and gladness. Now, I don't know what you see here, but I see two different mindsets. Don't you? Is ecstatic delight the same as contentment? No, this is what I see. Fans of golf is the English up here in the top left, watching this golf game, the Greek are the Green Bay Packer fans. There's a difference, right? And for you golf guys, I'm sorry. Like, I'm not, I'm not. Jamie's looking at me like, yeah, picking on golf. There you go. But, you know, kind of like Alex said, the core sports, you know, the fans are better, right? You know, you, you go to a golf tournament, and there's this constant what? Shh, right? Everybody be good. Now, I'm, there's, there's cheering, and there's excitement. I get that. But let me ask you something. Do you think there's as... as as much excitement at a golf tournament as there was Friday night at the Hayleville football game when they're losing by what, 30 at halftime and like there's no way they're ever going to come back. It was the ultimate David and Goliath experience ever, you know. It wasn't 30, but let's just hop it up a little bit, right? When they won that game, do you think there was gladness in the stadium? And do you think it looked like the golf fan or the football fans? Which one do you think? The football fans, because it's a football game. I get that. But as Christians, the gladness that we have because of the resurrection of Jesus and that he is the resurrection and that I'm going to be resurrected is not this idea of well-being and contentment. Oh, life's good. Kumbaya. No, it is ecstatic, exuberant, and intense that I live my life that happy, that joyfully, that people look at me and they see these guys and they're like, you're so happy, you're so excited, you're so worked up about Jesus that you're a little strange. But that's okay. That's okay. Because we get that because of Jesus. And I'm afraid that we've been taught for so long that things have to be in decency and order, and I'm not going against some of that, but I'm saying that maybe that's worked its way into our doctrine to the extent that the Holy Spirit's fire is not burning in us like it needs to, and we are content when we should be exuberant. 
We are content when we should be exuberant. Gladness. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot that I want to say about this, but I'm on pace to preach longer than I've ever preached here. I'll say this. Satan has done a great job over the last couple of years to suck the joy out of our life. I'm not saying that Satan is the cause of COVID, but Satan has used COVID to suck joy and gladness from our life. And he has kept sickness in our forefront view for two years now. Every time someone coughs at Walmart, the aisle clears. Parting of the Red Sea, you know, it just does, gone, can't be around them. And we're so worried and we're so scared about things that we used to not be. We don't think about things the same way that we used to. And that's not always a bad thing, but it's not always a good thing. Satan has used this to rob us of our joy. But the great thing about Jesus is this. Jesus says, I'm the source of your joy. And me, as the resurrection and the life, overcomes everything, even if you get sick, even if you die. I have come to the world of the dying so that you can live forever. And in that, we should find exuberant and ecstatic and intense delight joy and gladness. If that's the only thing you take from this lesson, if that's... if you, if I, This is it. This is it. That our life needs to be defined by this mindset. Why? Because it is the biblical mindset. Amen? All right. Got a little worked up there. I'll get back to preaching here. Labor together with courage. Very quickly, we'll hit on these things. Then the lesson will be yours. There's two types of courage in life. YOLO. You know what YOLO is? You only live once. You only live once. You better take advantage of it. You only live once. It's the kind of courage that says, you only live once. I'm going to jump out of this airplane with a piece of cloth that says it's going to stop me. How many of you have that type of courage? Not me. Y'all, I'm worried I'm going to fall off this stage half the time. And I know y'all are too. But I've never fallen off a stage. I have fallen going up the stage, tripping. But I've never fallen off. And we're going to hopefully pray that it stays that way. Rather, our courage is based on this. You will rise again. You will rise again. You see, YOLO leads to impulse. Okay? You will rise again leads to courage based in Jesus of saying, I can have the courage to live a loving life like Jesus loves. I can have courage to forgive like Jesus forgives. I can have courage to live in the Spirit as Jesus lived in the Spirit. I can have courage to serve and to go and do and to step out of my comfort zone because I will rise again. My courage is not based on fear of death. My courage is based on the hope of the resurrection, the assurance of the resurrection, which leads us to this last thing. Because of the resurrection, I can grieve with all of you in hope. I can grieve with all of you in hope. We're going to what? Say it. We're going to die. You're going to. In case no one's told you that before, you're going to die. And when you die, the people that you leave behind are going to miss you. And they're going to grieve you. And they're going to mourn you. But that grief is not empty. It's filled with hope. 
1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 16 says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. He is the resurrection, right? And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive are not left until, who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. But listen, y'all, verse 14, verse 13 here, that, hey, we don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Why? Because those who have fallen asleep are not just there. They are with God, and he's going to come back, and he's going to take us with him. And then he leads us into 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of weed or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, there, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly body is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars differ in their splendor. So it will be at the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. And it is raised a spiritual body. You know what this tells me? We have a great anticipation. We have a great anticipation that what, listen, I love life. I love the life that I'm living. I love all of you. I love my family. I love my kids. I love my wife. But you know what? We all, as much as we love each other, have even something greater to look forward to. And because of that, we have hope. And whoever it is, I don't know who it's going to be. It's going to be one of you. Whoever it is that leaves us next, we will mourn after you leave. But we will mourn with the understanding that we can anticipate that we will be with you again. And when we join you the next time, it will be forever. Amen? No. Say it with me. Amen? Do you believe this morning? Do you believe? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He says, I am this. And we can take that to the bank and it can change our life and it can do things in our life that nothing else can. It gives us courage. It gives us hope. It gives us so many things. So I hope that you take this thought from the Word of God and you let it sink in, you let it soak in, and you let it make a difference. Let's close with a word of prayer. And then the invitation. God, we thank you so much for just being the God of life. For being our sustainer. And knowing that this time, this reality, and this is real, that this reality will come to an end. 
But it is not the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality as children of God rests in your presence with you for all of eternity in honor and in glory and in power, God. And we look forward to that moment so much. And we thank you for Jesus who came and conquered death and rose from the grave and walked again and breathed again and loved again. And we just look forward to that moment of our life and our existence as well. God, as awesome as this is, we also understand that this promise This anticipation is only for your children. So it is my prayer, God, that if there are those in this room this morning who aren't your child, that they'll be pricked, that they'll be convicted, that they'll know they need to come to you and have their sins washed away in baptism so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be holy, so that they can be pure so that they can have your spirit dwell within him and allow your spirit to guarantee their salvation and mark them as belonging to you. Bless us, God, as we walk out today. Help us to believe and allow that belief to turn to action in our life. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. If there's anything you need this morning, come as we stand and sing together.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's good for us to have been here today. It's good for us to have sung praises to you, to worship you, Father, to sing praises, to pray, to partake of the Lord's Supper, Father. Thank you for allowing us to do that. Thank you again, Father, for sending your Son to die for us on the cross so that we might have an opportunity, Father, to overcome death, so that we might rise again someday in the resurrection. Thank you for providing that opportunity by sending your Son. Father, we pray this morning for those mentioned who are sick and undergoing treatment. Father, be with them. Be with the ones that are upcoming procedures, Father, and help them recover, help them be strong, and help the ones that look after them, Father, and help their families support them as well as the church family. Father, go with us to the places we would go. Guard, guide, protect us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Thank you again for joining us, and please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel or our podcast. We can be found on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast provider. Also, leave us a five-star review, which will greatly assist in getting the message of God's love and salvation to others. You can also follow us on Facebook. Instagram. Mortals join the mighty chorus and Twitter morning stars began for the love be sure to join us again and until then remember to love like Jesus man to man.